0: Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. On October 15, 2017, Alyssa Milano tweeted the phrase, Me too. Days earlier, a horrific litany of allegations against Harvey Weinstein had been published, awakening an as-yet-unnamed demand for justice across continents. She'd heard the term from a friend, unaware of its origins, and felt it rang true with the simmering anger brewing all around her. Alyssa had put words to the ancient outrage of women long victimized by sexual predators, inviting them all to stand up and say together, Me too. By the following day, #MeToo had bloomed into a movement. The reckoning had begun. In the two years since, Alyssa has become an ever more visible presence in the world of social justice. But she's no novice when it comes to activism. Alyssa has been using her celebrity status to draw attention to prejudice and toxic conservatism since she was a teenager. In the 1980s, at the height of her Who's the Boss fame and the peak of the U.S. AIDS crisis, she kissed the HIV-positive youth activist Ryan White on national television to send a message that the disease couldn't be spread through casual contact. A shocking but powerful move against the stigma and panic sweeping the nation. 30 years later, Alyssa says it was Ryan who taught her the lesson she still lives by, quote, that I had the power as a celebrity to change things and to stand up for what's right. Today, the world is once again in the grip of panic and prejudice. And despite the horde of trolls constantly attacking her on social media, Alyssa's commitment has only deepened and grown more fierce. Alyssa won't back down. In the face of adversity, she keeps talking and using her platform for good. Acting, she says, is her day job, but much of her time is devoted to highlighting the injustices that affect not only her, but the marginalized millions who do not have her platform. Clean water, health care, the refugee crisis, gun violence— And the persistent sexual abuses insidious in her industry and so many others. Whether online or on the ground, Alyssa often stands alongside other activists, including Tarana Burke, the woman who started Me Too. She invites political candidates on her own podcast called Sorry Not Sorry and presses them on the issues we all want answers on. Alyssa knows how to use her spotlight, not only to shine light on her own causes, but on the vital work of others. With 2020 looming large, She stands strong and at the ready. The future is utterly uncertain, but this much we know for sure. Alyssa Milano will be there, leading the charge with Mike in hand. Melissa Milano, it's such a pleasure to have you on UnStyle today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank
1: you for having me. Excited to be with
0: you. Well, there's many reasons why we wanted to get you here to talk with us. You wrote a great essay for us about gun reform and just your opinions about gun violence right now. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that essay and, and just your writing lately?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that it was important to really spell out that we got where we are right now, not only just due to Republican obstruction of gun reform, but also because the Democrats were not courageous enough when they were in power to do something about unnecessary gun violence in this country. And I believe in being a patriot over someone that's a partisan hack. And I think it's important to call out the injustices when we see them. And Gun reform is a big one for me because I don't understand how a president like Barack Obama could be in power and see 20 children be killed in a classroom and not sign an executive order to change things. He signed a lot of executive actions that were somewhat weak but didn't have the courage to sign an executive order and I think it's important to call that out. It's very easy to to blame Republicans on where we are right now, but it takes everybody.
0: I think also something that you pointed out in that essay was the sort of insidiousness of it and the fact that our attitudes towards guns and our rights to guns has become so systemic. And I think what you tried to do is break it apart so people could see there's a lot of different broken pieces that are creating this kind of dovetailing effect of what's happening with gun violence right now. I hope this is the fever pitch. It's hard for me to imagine things getting worse, which leads me to the next thing, which I think is really exciting and important and optimistic. Tell us about this initiative that you're building
1: right now. It is called the 2020 Fund. I've been politically active since 2000. What happened for me was in my 20s, I watched Al Gore get the election stolen from him, and that was really the impetus for me. Do you remember how stressful that was? Yes. I think, And it's very similar to what we're dealing with now, but different, obviously.
0: I'm sure with our parents' generations, I'm sure that they experienced the same kind of anxiety around elections, certainly everything that was happening with Nixon, but... I remember that being such a defining moment in my adult life. Yeah, me
1: too. And it really motivated me to get politically active, not only on a, a national level, but also on a state level. And so in 2004, I started campaigning for Kerry. And I would go to colleges in the back of a pickup truck with a bullhorn and do rally cries for John Kerry and traveled all over the United States and have done so since that election. And I think that through traveling the country, campaigning for a candidate, the thing that I recognized and I realized was, one, you're never going to get a better opportunity to learn about the American people than actually going to listen to what they care about and knock on the doors and say, hey, there's an election coming up. Let's hear about the issues that are important to you. But also just how important grassroots organizations are in getting out the vote. These are the people that basically donate their livelihood for the entire election cycle to get out the vote and to make sure candidates get the best opportunity to win. And they live on like apples and peanut butter because the orgs don't have a lot of money to actually pay them to eat even. So when... It came time to get serious about 2020. I was getting asked the question, who are you going to endorse, blah, blah, blah. And in 2016, I was an early endorser of Bernie Sanders. And it just didn't feel right to come out early for anyone in particular, not only because who knows what we need to win right now and beat Trump, which should be the most important thing. But also, we're in such a volatile time right now where everyone has such strong opinions, even from the left. I just didn't want to contribute to any infighting whatsoever. So my philosophy has been, I'm going to support every single candidate until the primary comes and the American people pick their ticket. And then I will throw all my weight behind that candidate. How do you feel,
0: other than with the 2020 fund, is the best way that each of us can really draw as much value from the months leading up to? Because it's now, I think we're... I'm
1: concerned because I f- almost feel that there is a potential for burning out by the time this election comes. I don't ever remember there being so much focus this early out. So much can happen between now and then, not only about the candidates. I think the impeachment thing hanging
0: in the balance, I think, is keeping everything much more charged.
1: I wish that there was more focus on the impeachment because, in my opinion, that's a strategy that you can't buy, meaning you make him fight on both fronts. You make him fight against an actual opponent. And then you make him fight during the impeachment inquiry, both of which, as we have seen, gets to him. You know, he's constantly talking about candidates that he feels threatened by or people that he feels threatened by. But also he's clearly feels the heat as far as impeachment goes. So I wish that that were more part of our daily vernacular and part of this process than it is. I just feel like... We're becoming immune, it's becoming normalized, and it's hard to imagine that we're still going to have this kind of fire 16 months from now. But in the interim, obviously, I have to do something. I can't just sit here and do nothing. So I felt that the best thing to do was to take these battleground states, which are Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, the states that we only lost by 77,000 votes, which is crazy. I think that the gravity of that really needs to set in. Yeah, 77,000 votes across three states. exactly. And so I thought, how can I help those three states? And... I went right back to this place of grassroots organizations and helping people get out the vote. So I started a 2020 fund. And in these three states, the 2020 fund will be raising money for incredible organizations that will be instrumental to winning back the presidency. And so I'm really excited about it. And people seem really genuinely motivated and grateful that there's some place that they can donate their money to that's not the DNC, that's not a specific candidate, but they know that their money is going to go straight to these grassroots organizations that are going to get out the vote. Which is very easy to understand. Thank you for doing that. Right. And the Movement Voter Project is going to match everything that we raise. So $2 million will go into the field to these organizations that will be really important to winning back the presidency and our sanity.
0: Sometimes it can feel really disconnecting to sort of hear about how politics is discussed on CNN and, and different kinds of news channels. It can be incredibly overwhelming. But when you're sharing in those conversations about how the trickle-down effect really impacts your community and the business owners in your community and mm-hmm. the women in your community and the people of color in your community, I think it strikes a much more passionate,
1: almost a human, humanity-driven
0: It's cord. basically trying
1: to win the election instead of from the top down, from the ground up. Yeah. And I feel like that is what a community is about. In 2016, people would say to me, um, why should people vote? You know, I get asked that question a lot. And it's it, a fair question. It wasn't until 2016 that I realized that our vote is actually what protects our neighbors. Because we were looking, we were staring at such an inhumane candidate that we knew, we were forewarned that he was going to put forth very hurtful policy. So for me, it was like this year, you have to vote so that you protect the people that you love. You know, whether that be women's rights or immigration rights, whatever it is, we, we all need to come together and vote to protect our neighbors. And so something like the 2020 fund is really that culmination of thought. How do we win this back? But really putting the power back in the community's hands. So that it doesn't feel overwhelming. What is your dream in terms of like how people will actually utilize the fund? We just need donations because that's the beauty of like it. money. It's money. <laughs> well, the, the beauty of it is or these organizations are on the ground in these states. These are their states. Mm-hmm. This is their specialty. They all get out the vote in these states. So yeah. who better to give the money to to create this change than the people that do it anyway? Yeah. that are struggling to figure out how to feed their volunteers and uh, to really get people motivated to get to the voting polls.
0: I'd like to shift gears. You grew up in Brooklyn.
1: Yeah. Well, no, I was born in Brooklyn. We Benson lived there, Hurst, right? Yeah, we lived there until I was uh, four, and then uh, someone got shot in our neighborhood, and the bullet came through the front door of the house, and my parents moved us to Staten Island. Do you remember that? No. Okay. No.
0: What memories do you have from growing up in New York, in Brooklyn, in New York, in Staten oh, Island? I have
1: great memories of being in New York. Tell me two. Well, in Staten Island, there was this amazing house. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. My dad, that was a music institute. My parents had very little money, but I never felt that way because everything that I wanted to do, whether it be dance or music or art classes, they made sure it happened for me. And there's this incredible house that my dad and I used to go to together and it was a music institute. And we used to go from room to room. You could pay, it was like $10 an hour. And you would go, and you go into whichever room you wanted to go into, and you could learn flute in one room, and music theory in another room, and drums in one room, and vocal lessons. You could spend as much time as you wanted there. And my dad and I used to go take music classes I want to go together. there. I know. How cool is that? Do you think it still exists? Mm, I don't know. I don't even know if...
0: $10 an hour. Wow.
1: Yeah. Well, at that time, that was... Yeah. That, was, that like, was a lot of money. That was a lot of money. Yeah. And so I remember going to do that with my dad, and that being incredible. And I remember my parents worked in Manhattan, and we would take the ferry from Staten Island into Manhattan, and uh, I'd spend the day at my dad's office and play on the typewriter because that's how long ago that was. I thought typewriters were so No, I did the same so thing cool. at, my, at my
0: mom's office too because you were busy working. Yeah, you're like I've I have, I have work to do. Yeah, Leave me alone. Work. I know yeah. I'm writing.
1: But yeah, I have great memories of New York. And then when I had my kids, I hosted Project Runway All Stars for a mm-hmm. little bit, and they shot in New York. So I was able to take the kids to New York for three months every summer. Uh, Yeah, it was such great memories that we were able to make for my kids, too. New York is a special – it's a special place. I don't know that I could live there long term Mm -hmm. again because I'm very into all of the things about Los Angeles that make Los Angeles amazing. Like hiking Mm -hmm. and sky, going to the beach for lunch being able to drive two hours to the snow. Do you spend a lot of time outside with your kids? Yes. We live on um, five acres with nine horses. Wow. Yeah, I have nine horses, four dogs, eight chickens,
0: two bunnies. All right, so basically you have a farm. <laughs> yes. Alyssa Milano has a farm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's a lot to manage on top of everything else you're doing.
1: We have help. The
0: kids all have jobs?
1: Yes, the kids have jobs.
0: Okay, good. That's good. <laughs> yes. So as a new mother, tell me a little bit about how you're parenting these days. How do you manage helping to support your kids and encouraging them to be courageous themselves? Now that I have a kid, and I'm sure that this comes with the territory, it's like I just feel so fearful. Does that ever happen to you? Do you ever feel afraid?
1: I think parenting is the single most terrifying thing I've ever done in my life.
0: Well, <laughs> I'm go. glad I'm not alone in it.
1: No, and I, by the way, I don't think you're alone in it. And I think more women are, are speaking very honestly about that. And I think that that would be true in the best of social, cultural, and political situations. And then add on top of it that we're having to navigate as parents how much to tell our children about what's going on right now, giving them the courage to stand up for what they believe in. And just to be in the world. Just to
0: be in the world and not feel...
1: It's a scary time. But on top of that, being responsible for two human beings and how they're shaped and cultivated into productive adults is a scary thing. It's scary. Well, who are your mentors? Like, who do you admire? I think that's changed throughout their childhoods. I'm good friends with Jewel. She had her son, I think, about two months before I had Milo. And I remember... She texted me one day and she was like, breastfeeding is the hardest thing you're ever going to do in your life. And I was like, come on. That's crazy. That's so dramatic. It's the most natural thing. How could it be hard? And sure enough, I had the baby in like three weeks of breastfeeding. and My nipples were bleeding. And she became like my breastfeeding mentor, my coach, you know, where she wouldn't let me quit. And she was just like, you got to get through this first six weeks. The mommy friendships that I've made – I am so thankful for because just to be able to say to someone, is your kid a jerk sometimes because I can't, I can't. And them say, oh, yeah, of course, of course they are. Um, <laughs> Help so much, you know, to not feel that you have to project this idea of motherhood as being this perfect thing where you're on white sheets and everything's all perfect and beautiful. It's not. It's fucking hard. Every day it's hard. Every night I close my eyes and I'm like did I fuck them up today? Are they okay today? What did I do? No, today was a pretty good... Oh, well, there was that one moment where I lost my... (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, But then I look at my parents and I think that raising a child in the entertainment industry was not the easiest thing in the world and I think what they enabled was my own individuality, but also there was no codependency there. I was working at seven, so they really had no choice. But giving a child enough space to really be who they were meant to be, I think, is important too. They kind Um, of are who they are. They are who they are, and then it's our job to you know. People used to ask me all the time, "Would you let your child act?" And before I had them, I would say, no, of course not. But now having them, if they showed some natural affinity to performing or being in the spotlight, I would allow it. I mean, who better than me to raise a child in this industry than someone that's been through it? But luckily, as of right now, neither one of them are showing any signs of wanting to be actors.
0: What was it like starting to work? I mean, is it true that your babysitter
1: took you Mm -hmm. to an audition without your parents'
0: consent? Yeah. I mean— Bravo. That's pretty courageous <laughs> Well, of her. She,
1: she was auditioning. Oh. So she, she just threw you in it. there. Yeah. So, yeah, and I was there, and she had her equity card, and she was auditioning for the play Annie, and it was an open audition, and there were kids there. She was auditioning for one of the ensemble roles, and there were kids there, and they were on the stage singing happy birthday and dancing. She asked me if I wanted to audition. I had no idea what that word meant. I was seven. Uh, it was my son's age. And... I knew that I could do what they were doing, and 1,500 kids were there, and only four got picked, and I was one of the four. I
0: mean, did you know your life had changed that day? Did it feel any different? Or did you just go mm-hmm. home and have dinner that night, and we just like, eh, I don't think big, it no felt whoop.
1: different until Who's the Boss was a success, which wasn't until the second year. Let's talk about Who's the Boss, because I grew up with
0: Who's the Boss. It was a very defining series for me, because I probably didn't know it then, but Judith... Lights character was such a feminist. It was such Mm -hmm. a feminist show, and it's interesting how many shows like that, like also Bonnie Franklin in One Day at a Time. There's many of them that feel very strong feminist values without kind of like overtly sort of saying so with these really strong female protagonists. But did you notice when you were on that show that this was a really interesting dynamic, the sort of family dynamic of the show? No, I think
1: because I was too young to really get it, but. Obviously, once I was old enough and dealing with sexism and misogyny, I realized how crucial that show was. I mean, she was a divorced single mom that ran her own business that had a promiscuous mother. I mean, if Catherine Hellman was, I mean, everything in that show. And that was really one of the first times you saw an older woman, like, in charge of her own sexuality and not being shamed for it but really being celebrated
0: yeah and not giving a shit and then just what the, anyone thinks
1: yeah and then the gender reversal of having a male nanny basically housekeeper manny manny yeah <laughs> it was a really i think important show and when people say to me oh, well, what about a who's the boss reunion or a revival i I just don't think it would be as substantial as it was then, because now those things are, I mean, we're still fighting for them, obviously, but the ideas are a little bit more mainstream.
0: You essentially grew up on that set, Mm -hmm. and you left when you were 19. How do you think that really informed who you are and how you see women's rights and how you operate in the world? There are a few moments I can point to. You were a ginormous, ginormous star. I mean, that must have been really jarring at times.
1: There was a moment when I was 15 years old that I think is responsible for shaping my activism. I got a phone call from Elton John saying that there was a little boy named Ryan White that wanted to meet me, that I was his role model. And uh, Ryan White was a teenager that was HIV positive that was kicked out of his school because uh, the school board was convinced that he could give HIV AIDS uh, to other children just from casual contact. And he fought for the rights to go back to school. And he spoke in front of Congress. And we became good friends. I loved him very much. And he had asked me when I was 15, and again, this was sort of the height of my popularity, he asked if I would go on the Phil Donahue show and kiss him to prove that you couldn't get HIV AIDS from casual contact. And I I did. And that was the moment that I realized the power of having a platform and how it could affect positive change and how... Being a celebrity meant that there was a certain responsibility to be the voice of those that had no voice and to fight for what I believed to be right. So when people ask me, how do you deal with the trolls?
0: I think the scrutiny that you get seems definitely disproportionate to other people. I think think people with
1: strong uh, political belief that is different than what I believe in has voiced that to me and they have every right to do that. Dealing with trolls now at 46 is much easier than dealing with trolls at 15 in your face telling me that I had HIV AIDS and not being asked to the prom because people thought I was HIV positive because I kissed Ryan White on TV. I have always understood that standing up for things means that you're going to be uncomfortable. And so I don't think now is any different. I I think it's shifted because you're a lot more accessible with social media. So people have access. It upsets my husband. He trolls my trolls. I'm sure he does. And he's super proud of, like, when he gets some good. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> like, yeah, I'm like, you're a crazy person. It's okay. <laughs> no, no, he's not
0: a crazy person. He he loves you and, and he's, he's supportive. Yeah. Yeah. But let's talk about trolls for a second. How do you actually take care of yourself in the face of all of that?
1: I think the most... Beneficial thing that I've been able to, I'm not going to say perfect, but get really, really good at is being present in the moment. There is so much going on right now. So much that I feel like in a soulful, real fucking way. And to be able to look at my kids and give them 45 minutes of real focused play, being silly, being goofy, is such an important reminder for me of why I fight the way I fight, but also what I'm fighting for, which is not me, it's them. And so playing with my children, getting down on the floor, being silly, is a form of self-care for me because it's it kind of embodies everything that I'm doing right now. And trust me, I could not do half of what I do without this exact support system that I have in place. As hard as it is for them and as fearful as, like, my mom gets and my aunt gets for my safety, they understand that it's what I'm doing is important. So I'm blessed in that way. To have that support system, I, I don't know if I could do it without that without like my husband saying no what you're doing is important you need to keep doing it. Well, we need you in our Ooh, corner Thank you so much. We really do. Thank you. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> not, and if they try to take me away, I'll go and fight. No. <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> Alyssa Milano, it's been such a pleasure thank to have you. have you here talking to us today. I appreciate thank you so much for so being much. here. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. I hope you're inspired after hearing Alyssa's story. For even more Unstyled extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag Unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be infinitely grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on Apple Podcasts and rate us while you're there. You can head over to Refinery29.com to find this episode and more, and make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was produced by Rebecca Easley with production assistance from Kate Spencer. Unstyled was edited by Priscilla Mena and Anna Costanza, and our writer is Kelsey Miller. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist at Argo Studios and Gotham Podcast Studios. We'll see you back here next Monday for a conversation with actress and writer Molly Ringwald on being eternally iconic. See you then.